Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Great prayer, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Now let's stand together as we read God's holy word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's something that is very common in almost all of Paul's letters to the churches. And it's this, he, he often pauses and prays for them. You know, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is no exception to that practice of Paul. <clears throat> At the end of chapter 1, Paul pauses to pray for the church that they might know God better. It's, it's not that they didn't know God, but he prays that they might know him better and how we need to know God better and better and better throughout our Christian lives. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul once again pauses to pray for the church. You know, I really encourage you to use these prison prayers in your own prayer life. Pray them back to God for yourself and also for one another. You know, these are not ordinary prayers. They're prayers that are prayed under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Prayers that God desires to answer on behalf of His people. Of course, this prayer right here is one of the most beautiful prayers and also most often quoted prayers in the Bible. It's not only a prayer for the Ephesian Christians, but... It's a prayer for our church. It's a prayer for you. It's a prayer for me. It's a prayer for churches everywhere. I want you to notice how Paul begins this magnificent prayer. He begins by saying, for this reason. For this reason. Now, now what moved Paul to pray for these Ephesian Christians in this church? Paul says, for this reason. In other words, I, I believe he is saying, because of what God is doing to accomplish his eternal plan. That's what he's been talking about in chapters 1 
in chapters 2 and also in chapters 3 because of what God is doing to accomplish His eternal plan to save the lost and to unite both Jews and Gentiles and place them in one body, the church. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Notice that, I bow my knees before the Father. You know, that, that was Paul's position or his posture in prayer. Now, kneeling was not common at all for uh, Jewish Christians. Um, they normally didn't kneel in prayer. The Jewish custom was to stand in prayer. Jews would stand to pray with their hands raised. That was the normal posture for Jews in the synagogue and other places. In my trips to Israel, I remember seeing vividly Orthodox Jews praying before the willing wall, standing, rocking back and forth, praying. And of course, they were praying for the Messiah to come. Of course, we know that he's already come. But many of them are praying for the Messiah to come. On my last trip to Israel, I met a young Israeli on the plane who told me that he was a musician. It was very clear he didn't know the Lord. And in our conversation, he asked me if I believed that the Messiah had already come or should we still be looking for him. And I said, I believe he has already come. Because that's what the Word of God tells us. And his reply really surprised me. He said, so do I. So do I. He wasn't a believer in Jesus. You know, that was clear. But he believed that the same Jesus who walked the streets of Jerusalem, who was crucified, who was raised from the dead, was the Messiah. And ever since, as God brings him to mind, I pray that this young musician, this young Israeli might come to know Jesus as his personal Messiah. You know, in the Bible, God's people prayed in many different ways. King Solomon prayed kneeling at the dedication of the temple. Um, King David prayed often laying on his bed, you know. Now, Jesus in Gethsemane, he prayed falling on his face. Stephen, the, the great martyr, before he, was, before he was killed for his faith, prayed standing before the Lord. And for Paul, it was getting down on his knees to pray. Today, it's very customary for Christians to pray sitting. Often, that's the way we pray, sitting. You know, I, I personally like to pray when I'm walking. That's just a wonderful time to pray, you know, just um, basking in the glory of God's creation. That's a wonderful uh, time to pray. But the bottom line is that there's not a right way and there's not a wrong way to pray. Not a right way or a wrong way. But there's something, there's something special about getting down on your knees that gets your heart right, that gets you the, the right attitude in prayer, humbling yourself before the Lord. Remember where Paul is when he prays here. He's locked up. He, he's in jail. He's chained to a Roman guard. And can you imagine the incredible impact 
you know, Paul's prayer life made on those Roman soldiers who guarded him day by day, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. We believe that he could have been in prison there in, in Rome at this time for two or three years waiting trial. What a witness that was to those hardened Roman soldiers to watch Paul cry out his petitions to God. And I, and I say that to say this, that your prayers can make a huge impact on other people. It can make a huge impact on your children, on your grandchildren. You know, could it be that they see us glued to our TV sets and to our iPhones and not glued to prayer? I will never forget the story of a young lady who told me about her father. She said when she was growing up, when she was still at home, she would come down early in the morning to have breakfast before she was off at school, and she would pass by a little sitting room, and every morning, without fail, every morning she would see her father sitting there with his Bible open, reading God's Word, and she said often he would be kneeling on his knees in prayer. And she said, Pastor, that made an incredible impact on my life growing up. I saw from my father the importance of coming before God in prayer. And I had the privilege of sharing that story with her at her father's memorial service when he passed away. Don't minimize your prayer life. Your prayer life can make an incredible difference in people's lives. And so Paul says again in verse 14, and, and the New King James Version reads this way, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I love that. I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one God and Father, and He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not the Father of Muhammad. God is not the Father of Joseph Smith. God is not the Father of Brigham Young. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if your God is not the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is not God. He is not God. And then he goes, on to, he goes on in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Notice that. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I personally believe that this is referring to God's family. God's family in heaven and God's family on earth. We, we know that God's family is called by his name. The, the family of God. And, of course, part of God's family is in heaven. We call them the church triumphant. For them, the battle is over. They're with the Lord. And, and then part of God's family is, is down here on earth. That's the church militant. We're still in the battle. Oh, the battle's won, but we're still in the midst of the battle. But whether we reside in heaven or on earth, the church is one family. This speaks of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. This speaks of the unity of God's family. 
God's church is separated for a time. Some in heaven, some on earth. But we're still one body in Christ. And of course, when Jesus Christ returns at the rapture, he's going to bring his family in heaven and on earth together, never to be separated again. And you know, that's our hope. Uh, the rapture is, is, is that blessed hope. One day, there's going to be a glorious reunion in the sky. A glorious reunion in the sky. And God's people are never going to be separated again. What a wonderful day that will be. Now Paul makes his prayer to the Father. There are three, there are three um, uh, petitions here. There's a prayer for strength. There's a prayer for love. And there's a prayer for, full, for fullness. And then at the end, there's a beautiful, wonderful, glorious doxology. First, there's a prayer for strength. Look at verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, there's one thing that's true about every person in this room. We're all weak. I mean, if, if we... If we were honest with ourselves, we would say, you know, we're all weak. We're all weak spiritually, and we all need to be strengthened in our inner being. That was true of the Ephesians church. That's why Paul prayed this prayer. And it's true for us here at Wasmussel Baptist Church that, that we're weak spiritually, and we need to be strengthened. You know, so often we pray, and we seem to be more concerned about our outer being our physical body, than our inner being, our, our spirit, our spirit life. We, we pray for healing. We pray for miracles. We, we pray for our health needs, and, and, and that's good. We ought to pray about these things, but we often neglect, don't we? We often neglect to pray for the most important things in life. That is our spiritual health. Spiritual strength, that's what we need to be praying first and foremost about. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Huh. Nothing. Without my strength, Jesus is saying, you can't make it, you'll never make it. Without me, you can do absolutely nothing. But there's good news. God's strength is available to us through the Holy Spirit of God. And my friend, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at the very moment you believed in him, at the very moment you trusted him, the blessed Holy Spirit came to live in your life. Now, see, the strength is available to us. And God promises here in verse 16 to strengthen us according to the riches of his glory. Not out of his glory, not out of his riches, but according to his riches. And there's a big difference between the two. Now, just suppose for a moment that I'm a, I'm a billionaire and I walk up to you and I give you a $100 bill. That would be out of my riches. But if I, give, if I gave you a blank check made out to you... <laughs> And signed it, that would be according 
to my riches. See, God doesn't give us his strength and his power out of his riches, but according to his riches. In other words, he leaves nothing out. He gives us his strength, his power, the power that we need to live this life. He has called us to live out according to his riches and glory. Now, look at the results. Look at the result in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if you just read that from the outset, you know, it, it, it says, wait, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, weren't these Ephesians Christians? Wasn't Christ already, you know, dwelling in their hearts through faith? You know, didn't we um, receive the Holy Spirit? And didn't Jesus come to indwell our hearts the moment we trusted him as Savior? And the answer to that question is yes. But this dwelling is different. This dwelling is different. The word dwell here means to settle down and to be at home. That's what it means. Well, see, Jesus is already a resident in our hearts. But this prayer is for Jesus to be at home in our hearts. And to rule our hearts by faith. Now, let me just give you this silly little illustration. When you visit friends and they tell you to make yourself at home, they really don't mean that. No, they just don't mean that. And let me just tell you what I mean by that. If they walked in and they see you um, with your shoes all over the furniture... With a drink, you know, on the table, with popcorn spread everywhere. If they see you looking through their closet, snooping through their cabinets, raiding their refrigerator, they aren't going to like it. And, and most likely, they will tell you that they don't like it. You might say, wait a minute. You told me to make myself at home. But you weren't really at home. But Paul's prayer here, Paul's prayer is for Christ to be truly at home in our hearts. For him to have full excess in our lives. For him to rule our hearts and our lives. You see, he's praying for Jesus to have freedom to go through every room, every closet, every cranity in our lives and take possession of it. Well, Jesus might have resident in your heart, but does he rule your heart? That's the question. Is he at home in your heart? See, when Jesus rules our hearts, we'll have the strength and the power to live a life of victory because he is Lord and he is ruling. There's a second prayer here. A second prayer here. And that prayer is for love. Man, have you, been, have you been mindful of all the time that the Scriptures talk about love, loving God, loving Christ, loving one another? Well, this is a prayer for love. In verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, now the question is, whose love is Paul talking about? Well, 
He's talking about Christ's love for us. At this point, he's really not talking about our love for one another. He has plenty to say about that, but he is, he is talking about Christ's love for us. It is a prayer to know how much Jesus loves us. That's what this prayer is about. And I don't think really that we appreciate it very much. I don't, I don't think we appreciate how much Jesus loves us. Now, he uses this illustration, you know, of, of roots that a tree must have and uh, the foundation that a building must have. And basically, he's saying just as a tree must send down deep roots to be stable, just as a building must have a deep foundation to be stable, likewise, our lives must be rooted and grounded in love. And my friend, if you have the assurance of Jesus' love, if you have the assurance that Jesus loves you, nothing will be able to shake you. Nothing. Nothing will be able to shake you. And then Paul goes on to pray that we might be able to comprehend Christ's love for us. Look at verses 17 through 19. That, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What an amazing description of, of the greatness of Christ's love for us. If you ever question Jesus' love for you, just spend some time meditating on these, on these words the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love. Well, see, Jesus' love has length. When did Jesus start loving you? Ephesians chapter 1 says, before the foundation of the world. How long will that love last? Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It is eternal. It's an everlasting love. Jesus' love has depth. It is deep enough to reach the worst of sinners. In fact, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. Well, God's love is deep enough to reach the worst of sinners. Jesus' love has height. It is high enough to lift us to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's see, Paul wants us to comprehend, comprehend something that is incomprehensible. He wants us to understand something that is humanly impossible. He wants us to try to comprehend and to grasp Christ's love for us. You know, just think about the cross just for a minute. You know, just think about the cross. The cross has two beams that point in four directions. Height, depth, length. With, You know, these are the directions of Christ's love for you. Again, it is wide enough to include all sinners. All sinners. It is long enough to last for all eternity. It is deep enough to save the worst of people. It is high enough to take us to heaven. And I want you to look at the, the phrase in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ. 
Yes, we can know to a certain extent, as far as our finite minds can grasp, we can know how much Christ loves us. In fact, there are two Greek words for know in the New Testament. Uh, one is oida, which means to know about. That's just that intellectual head knowledge, to know about. Gnosko, which means to experience, to experience the love of, uh, of Christ. Now, the word know here is gnosko. It is to experience Christ's love. The prayer is not that we might know about Jesus' love for us, but that we might experience his love deeply in our lives. Samuel Rutherford was in prison for preaching Christ, and he wrote these words in prison in Aberdeen, Scotland. This is what he wrote. Now, it's in old English, but listen to these words. He says, love, love, I mean Christ's love, is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Oh, but the smoke of it be hot. Cast all the salt sea on it, and it will flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench Christ's love. Here he was in prison. This great saint of God, he was in prison. He was suffering terribly, terribly because of his faith and preaching Christ. He's even in prison. And Samuel Rutherford was experienced Christ's love. He was experienced. It it wasn't just a mental thing. It wasn't just a, you know, a head knowledge. I mean, he was experiencing Christ's love. He knew that Christ loved him. And here Paul is in prison. And and what is he doing? He is experiencing Christ's love. Not just a head knowledge. He was experiencing it deep in his heart and soul. See, Paul is praying that we might experience, not just know about it, but to experience his love. And you know, my friend, the best, the best way we can experience Christ's love is in community with other Christians. As Paul says in verse 17, with the saints. Notice that. See, the best way we can experience Christ's love is in community with the saints. When we meet together to to study and discuss God's Word. For the last several months, Cindy and I have been blessed to be a part of a small group on Wednesday night in Dale Webb. It's a real informal thing. We, We come together to read and discuss Sunday's message and apply it to our lives. And my friend, each week, you know, I come away, I come away blessed because I've learned so much from others as we share God's love with one another. So blessed. And I truly hope and pray in the years to come that that small groups will become a growing ministry in our church. Because we grow better, we learn better, we love better in community with the saints. We really do. We really do. Oh, a prayer for love. A prayer for strength. A prayer for love. And then finally, a prayer for fullness. 
Look at verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Kent Hughes gives an excellent illustration that helps us understand what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, he says, if you take a glass jar and go down to the beach and dip it into the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, you know, just a little jar like this. He says, you can dip it in the ocean. You can fill your jar to its capacity with the Atlantic Ocean. But you could never put the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean in your jar. You know, we can never, ever be filled with all of God's fullness any more than we can put all the Atlantic Ocean in a little jar. But we can dip our lives into his and be filled to our capacity with his fullness. Now, that's what Paul is praying here, that we would be filled to our capacity with his fullness. That's what he's praying. He wants you and me to experience God's fullness in every way. Now, as we read this prayer, you might be, you might be thinking to yourself, how could this ever become a reality in my life? I mean, how could this ever become a reality in my life? How can I ever experience God's strength? How, how can I ever know Christ's love? How can I experience God's fullness? How, how can I do that? Well, we find the answer in this doxology that he closes with. Look at verses 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we um, ask or think according to the power at work in us. In other words, the answer is we can't, but God can. Notice what it says here. Now to him who is able to do all that we ask or think. But that's not all. Now to him who is able to do more than all we ask or think. But that's not all. Now to him who is able to do far more than all we ask or think. But that's not all. <laughs> that's what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. What Paul does here, he just piles up phrase after phrase to show that our God is able to answer each of these requests in your life and my life. How does he do it? Verse 20, according to the power at work in us. In other words, we can't, but he can. And he can do it because the risen Christ indwells your life and my life. Now, how should we respond? Look at verse 30, 21. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, this is really the only right response. We're to give God the glory because he deserves all the glory. All the glory. That's why we're here, to give God the glory. That's what we will be doing as Christians throughout all eternity, giving God the glory. And, you know, I just love that scene in Revelation chapter 7. I love that scene in heaven where a great multitude, which no man can number, okay? 
Now, this is the church, my friend, that no man can number out of every nation of all tribes and people and tongue, all of God's people are standing before the throne giving glory to the Lamb, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. See, that's the church. That's when we're all in heaven, and we're going to be in heaven giving God all the glory. So today, we're here, gathered together. Let us give God the glory, and let us continue to give him the glory throughout all generations here at Wassamasaw Baptist Church and throughout all eternity. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Oh, my friend, if you're in God's family, if you're in God's family, we're going to spend all eternity giving him the glory. But, my friend, if you're not in God's family, if you don't belong to him, if you don't have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then that is not true of you. But the Bible tells us very clearly how we can know that we belong to God's family. I love what John says in his gospel, the first chapter. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them gave he the right, the authority to become children of God, to be a part of God's family to all those who believe in him. So how do we become members of God's family? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just up here. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a heart commitment. It's trusting Jesus Christ and him alone. Trusting what he did on that cross for you. Trusting that he rose again from the grave. Trusting him and him alone. For your salvation. And my friend, when you do that, a miracle takes place. The greatest miracle in all the universe takes place. God will take you from death to life. Out of the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, you will be in that scene we just read about in Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray together.